0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We're going to continue our exposition in Hebrews, and we're uh, in chapter 9 this week, and you would find it helpful to have your Bibles open to page 1005 that funny 1005 but it's it's true it is that's you have this this pew bibles are the same as mine if you have your own bible then don't turn to page 1005 turn to hebrews 9 okay hebrews is one of those books that's hard to find because you don't think it's going to be quite so far to the back hebrews 9 1005 let's go to the lord first in prayer Heavenly Father, we pray that as we continue to work our way through Hebrews, that we would understand uh, who we are, uh, but above all, who your son is, uh, our great high priest, and Lord, that we might be given um, a clear understanding of who he is and what he's done for us uh, through his cross uh, today, uh, indeed every day uh, of our lives. Speak to us now by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Right, I'm actually going to read the bulk of 9 because it, it does a good job of, um, of capturing um, what we talked about last week as a summary and then into <clears throat> what we're going to get into when it comes to the blood. Now if you remember, uh, one of the things that we said last week was, uh, or in past weeks is that uh, Jesus uh, is our great high priest and he is not uh, like the high priest that served in the temple. Uh, and in fact, after Jesus has done his priestly thing in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he has no beginning, no end. He's not a priest because he's descended from Aaron. Uh, his job as a priest is not like that of the priest in the temple precincts. And because of what he's done as a priest, there is no longer any need for priests uh, at all. Indeed, what we get at the tail end of chapter 8 is in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Uh, This is, uh, if you want to get a a clearer image of what this looks like, it's... I mean, there's only a few kids here. How is it possible that that much volume is generated uh, by them? but there is uh, a clear image of this in paul 's second letter to the Corinthians uh, early on uh, in that in that letter where Paul makes a comparison that is like the moon is the old covenant, and the sun comes out and makes it as if the old covenant is there, the sun of the gospel comes out as if it 's not there at all and so but what he 's saying here very clearly is that the priesthood that is given as a provision in the Old Testament, is no more. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared for the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So, what is he doing? He's, he's already set up. This is what priests do. And now he's giving you the architecture of the temple. And this is uh, or in the tabernacle at this point, actually. Anytime you see the word tent in the, um, in the New Testament, it's just another word for, for tabernacling. So, he's talking about the tabernacle and he's talking about the Holy of Holies. He's giving you the architecture, right? That there's this one place that's called the Holy Place. And then there's another place called the most holy place. And thankfully there's not like a really, really holy place. It it ends with that. Uh, And he tells us what's going on uh, in that uh, holy place about the lampstand and the bread of presence and priests would go in and out and replenish that bread that is there. But then you have the holy of holies or the most holy place where can any priest go in there? No, just the high priest. And how often does he go in? Once a year. Man, y'all are good listeners. Uh, Once a year on the Day of Atonement when he goes in. And even when he goes in then, they tie a rope around his leg. You can read all about this in Leviticus chapter 6 in your free time. And uh, in case, why would they tie a rope around his leg? In case he died. Because nobody's going in after him. Right, so they would now. There's no record of this actually ever happening, uh, but uh, better safe than sorry. And so once a year, the high priest would go into that one place, and we're told what the Ark of the Covenant uh, looks like, and not only what it looks like, but what's in it. There's a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff, and the tablets of the covenant, which are Ten Commandments. Right. Um, uh, second edition. Um, there's a very funny story. I don't, for those of you, Gerald Bray, who is a, a great church historian and theologian and uh, recently taught over at Beeson Divinity School from England. Um, he's very good friends with a man named Don Carson. Some of you know him as D.A. Carson. And uh, Don Carson is a force in the world of uh, biblical studies. And um, D.A. Carson was giving a presentation of this book that he was about to release to a group of prominent theologians, and among them was Gerald Bray. And, um, and, well, to say the least, the theologians really went after Don Carson and said, you know, you weren't very clear about this, you should have said this, and you forgot about that. And, And he was feeling pretty down, and it was visible that he wasn't taking it very well, at which point Gerald Bray got up and said, oh, Don, don't worry, even Moses went through two editions, Um, so this is the copy because what happened to the first one he broke them he broke them so that's what's in there and then of course the cherubim over the mercy seat and of these things we cannot now speak in detail actually this is a mysterious little verse uh, but what he's trying to say is this stuff doesn't matter right now Right? It's, it's, it's passing. It's not that we don't have time. It's not that I really don't know how to des- describe this uh, because it's all described for us in places like Leviticus 6. And so these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, as we've said, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Remember, he's talking about types, and he's talking to Jewish Christians who would understand what he meant by that, and so he's drawing a parallel that where the priest can go in and out with no problem at all in the holy place, only the high priest with blood can go into the most holy place, and in the same way, the outer part, the holy place, is like the present age. But the inner place, the holy of holies, the most holy place, is like heaven or the, or the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll find out who can go in there in a minute. But he takes blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Uh, you may not know this, uh, but on the Day of Atonement, two sacrifices are made. One is a bullock, and that is actually for the priest and his family. Because he has to be cleansed before he goes in, right? That's, that's part of the deal. And then there's a goat that is sacrificed and he takes the blood from the goat. But there's another goat which he prays the sins of Israel upon. And then that's, that goat is let loose in the wilderness, uh, representing God parting the sins of Israel from the people as far as the east is from the west, never to be seen again. And what what do we call that goat? It's got a specific name. The scapegoat, right? That's where we get the word scapegoat from. And so that's what he's up to that day on the Day of Atonement. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. When we talked about last week, these sacrifices did what? They covered the sins. They didn't remit them. They didn't get rid of them. They simply covered them uh, in a way that was not permanent, uh, but in a way that was obviously temporary. And these sacrifices and this daily activity that happens in the life of the temple and even on the Day of Atonement, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is like, it's a really busy place, the temple. There's constant action going on. They're going in and out of the the holy place. But all of this is not enough, it says, to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That these sacrifices are not moral in nature. That they actually can't do anything to help reconcile you to God in a permanent fashion. But only deal with transgressions. So you'll read in the Old Testament that there are certain things that will defile a person. If you touch a dead body, there are things that you have to do in order to become uh, pure again so that you can make your way into the temple courts. Uh, there are various stages of life that are deemed un- impure. Uh, if you do certain things, if you all of these kinds of things um, are what uh, they would think are what makes someone impure and you need sacrifices to cover that. But of course Jesus comes, comes along and says what? It's not what a man does that defiles him. What he does outside of the body. Like touching a dead person. Uh, but what defiles a person? That which is from within. Inside that defiles the person. It's not about eating. It's not about touching dead bodies. uh, It is actually about looking for a sacrifice that has the ability to reconcile us to God the Father because the chasm is simply too great. It's too great. It's not as if even in the Christian life, well, Jesus does his part and I pick up where he leaves off. Some of us think that way. God, I know that you're a God of forgiveness and that you're going to forgive me my sins, but I feel the overwhelming sense that I have to do something on my end in order to get me to you. I pick up where the cross leaves off, but all you're doing is appropriating an Old Testament understanding of how one becomes right with God, which Hebrews tells us does not Deal with the conscience of the worshiper. Because you see, if that's the perspective you have, you're always going to live your life in fear of whether you're actually in right standing with God, aren't you? Because how do you know that you've ever done enough? You don't. You don't, which is why the temple was a constant operation. I mean, I would just go ahead and get a condo right on the wall. That's what I would do. And you think about the people who were, who were traveling uh, from uh, near and far and really only came into town on the big days that you had a lot to make up for, a long-running list. But here's a good Bible word, verse 11, but. but when Christ appeared as a high priest to the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all unto the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He doesn't go into the earthly temple after his resurrection, does he? In fact, I mean, you hear about it in, in Acts, especially as a place where people still hung out Uh, and and went up and did various and sundry things. Uh, But the temple quickly loses any prominence and becomes obsolete in the life of the Christian because that's not where Jesus goes. Where does he go? Where's Jesus? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's the holiest place you can possibly go, right? Right? And the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, is just a model of that. So he's using that as a comparison. So the blood of bulls and goats and all of those things are not enough, but he goes in not by their blood, but by his own blood, which is the cross. The cross is absolutely central in our dealing with God, or rather in God's dealing with us. I don't understand uh, people who will say, well, all y'all do is talk about the cross. Well, the author of Hebrews thinks that's all there is to talk about too. And that is because without the cross, Christianity simply becomes Judaism for Gentiles. We're still back in the old system, and we would be right to go ahead and bring the sheep and the goats and the bullock and have our way up here. But as it is, that's not where we are. But in fact, the cross of Christ reconciles us to God and brings Jesus into the presence of our almighty God. Jesus as a substitute for us. He's our scapegoat. Remember, we talked about it as the sign of the new covenant last week where you have, um, you have uh, being cast out of uh, the Garden of Eden, but of course the promise that there will become one born of you that will be bitten by the serpent, but he will crush the serpent's head, the promise, and then his second return, but in the middle, we have the establishment of the new covenant, and there they are at the Passover meal, and in the original Passover meal, there was a lamb on the table, and that lamb was the lamb that was slaughtered in order to provide the blood for the the mantle of the door, and so as you're sitting there, you're eating the lamb that was the means by which you were delivered from the angel of death. But now, who are you eating with? The Lamb of God, who says, this is my flesh given for the world. He's the Paschal Lamb. And so the understanding of Jesus' death is absolutely central to Christianity. And that's not to say the resurrection is not important. That is of ultimate importance as well. But the whole weekend of Good Friday and Easter make Christianity what it is. It would not have been enough for Jesus to have died of pneumonia. And it wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to simply have died on the cross and laid dead in the tomb. They're, They're both of ultimate significance when it comes to the Christian faith. Which is why the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his resurrection are everything. Not just in a theoretical understanding of Christianity, but in the means by which we're made children of God and have a relationship with God. For if the blood of goats and bulls, verse 13, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The freedom of the blood of Christ that we have as believers where we can now enter into the holy place in the presence of Almighty God without a rope around our ankle. Why? Because our great high priest has gone on before us, and we can now stand in his presence because his blood is enough. That's why you're able to have this personal relationship with God that we talk about. It's not that, you know, God's changed his mind since the Old Testament. He's a really nice guy, and he wants to be your buddy. But in fact, what it is, is that it costs something great. As Paul tells us in our passage from First Corinthians in, this, in uh, our gathering this morning, is that you were bought with a price. You're not your own. He's purchased you by the blood of his son. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems from them the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, whose who's will? We have a will and a state attorney in here alright uh, one of my he's beginning to use legal language so he's shifting and he's saying okay the blood is really important but here's the thing is that you can't enjoy the benefits of somebody's estate until when? until they die I have a very unusual uh, sense of humor sometimes and I've seen it before where somebody dies and the whole family is on pins and needles waiting to hear what the, what, what the lawyer has to say who gets what and it 's always great when nobody gets anything um, but uh, but with the death comes the benefits uh, of the person who has died, so the person has to die, but what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that not only. At the death of Jesus, do you have the forgiveness or the remittance of your sins, but do you understand the full benefits that you receive as being made a child of God, here and now? You're the beneficiary of that. It's often, you know, I remember some of the people uh, growing up who we thought were the most serious believers uh, were some of the biggest sticks in the mud on the face of the earth, Right? I mean, some believers give the impression that to be a real Christian, you, you have to be dour, you have to be uptight, uh, you have to be a fun sponge that walks into the room and soaks up all the fun. Uh, that, that's, that's what Christianity means just saying no to anything that would make you happy. But the author of Hebrews is saying that's not it at all. In fact, if you're running into Christians who are miserable, they need to read Hebrews chapter 9. The will's been read, and you get it all. Do you not understand that? Now, when you get it all, what happens? You take your around-the-world trip, right? You 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 live out. You take that which's been given to you, and you begin to live it out in a way that is rather gratuitous. I mean, even if you just, you know, I mean, you could take it and hoard it and put it in the ground, uh, as the um, as the servant did with the talent. But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, that you need to understand the joy and the life that comes at being a believer, that you were once in darkness, you were once in bondage, and now you've been set free. You've been given complete and total freedom, and you now live in the presence of an almighty God. Well, he goes on a little bit more saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, Jesus sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Uh, indeed, under the law, I'm sorry, that's Moses, not Jesus. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness and we're still dead in our sins and trespasses. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves which with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. That's how I sign all of my letters to my grandmother. Uh, it's appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay. So this is hitting on what we talked about a little bit last week. Jesus has died. He's gone into the heavenly place. And what is he doing now? Right? If you want to look, uh, you don't have to. Well, actually, somebody turn to chapter 1, verse 3b, beginning with the word after. 1 3b, after making. Read it aloud. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What, did Jesus, what is Jesus doing? He's sitting around. It's kind of funny to think that, isn't it? But Hebrews says he's just sitting around. Why? There's nothing left to do except to wait to come back. It's finished. It's It's complete. There's not this continual offering to God the Father as if he constantly has to be appeased by him. And in the same way he's saying that here on earth, if you think that there's a sacrifice that you need to make to God in order to appease him, then you've got it backwards. Now we're not going to the temple making sacrifices, but this is why at the time of the Reformation, the reformer said, the Holy Communion, is not a sacrifice to God, because if it is, then we're undermining what Hebrews is telling us. If Jesus is not continually presenting a sacrifice, why would we do it here on earth? Are we saying that that once and for all death on the cross of Christ on Calvary, was it not once and for all? Does it have to be repeated over and over and over again? Of course not. Now one of the changes that we made in our liturgy to demonstrate this, and you prayed it this morning at the nine o'clock, is that the liturgy in the American prayer book, wrongly, put in the communion prayer all this language about, and here we offer and present unto thee a sacrifice before we receive communion, as if we're offering up something to God when the Bible and our theology in the, in the prayer book, except the American prayer book in that one little bit, actually says that no, the Holy Communion is from God for you, to remind you. And the proper place that the Reformers put it in the 1662 book of common prayer, first in the 1552, then in the 1662, was that after we've received communion, after we've received the benefits of Christ's death on the cross, we say, and here we offer and present unto thee ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable living and sacrifice unto thee. That doesn't come first. Because that's just trying to build a false bridge to the Father. But actually the work has been done. And that gives us the freedom to be able to say, Lord, now in light of your cross and in light of your resurrection, here I am, take me. I belong to you. I want to serve you because of what you've done. Not, I'm going to give myself up to you that that now makes me worthy to be able to come forward and receive communion. But because of the work that you've done, I can now turn to you and serve you. And so there he is just sitting up there in heaven uh, and is waiting Uh, for that time. And when he appears a second time, he doesn't come to deal with sin because he's already dealt with that on the cross, but he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm eagerly waiting. Now, this is one of the great themes of Hebrews is that we're on our way to heaven and we want other people to go with us. And in our day and age, I don't think that a lot of people, even people in the church are eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. It's the bumper sticker that I see every once in a while that says, Jesus is coming, look busy, right? This whole idea that if Jesus is coming back, we don't want him uh, catching us, not busy doing whatever it is we think that we need to do uh, when he comes back. And there's even a spirit of trepidation at his return, but I, I can't wait. And I mean, I know that sounds so funny because um, Lauren uh, has chastised me a little bit about it and understandably so because it sounds bad when I say that because she says, well, what about the girls? Don't you want to see the girls grow up? I'm like, well, of course I do. Well, don't you want to see them get married? And that's when I'm like, come Lord Jesus. No, no. <laughs> Three weddings. Forget it. Absolutely not. And, you know, don't you want to see your grandchildren? Of course, of course. But in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be with my family, but you know where I really want to be with them? In heaven. But when he comes back, you know that we're not going to be in heaven? That God is actually going to take this earth and make it new? That you and I will be walking around Birmingham, Alabama, and that everything that was broken down and everything that was wrong is going to be made new and right? Oh, man, I long for that. I long for that because the evidences of our broken world are, are so prevalent, and I'm not saying that they're more prevalent now than they've ever been, uh, but I'm ready for him to come back, and I eagerly long for it, and, uh, and he is coming. And so the best thing that we can do is to preach Christ and him crucified and introduce people to him so that they can go to heaven with us where we can then dwell with this great high priest, even Jesus Christ. Questions, comments, concerns? Andrew, thank you. Yes, Jay. Word. Um, when the early disciple, after the resurrection, after the ascension, and the disciples, Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, were still in Jerusalem, still going to the temple, mm-hmm. they would not have been offering sacrifices. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, no. We, well, at least there's no record of them offering sacrifices. And you'll remember that even Jesus in the temple courts was, um, was doing a lot of teaching up there. So it was, I, re, I would encourage you, you can get online and you can see the layout of all of these things um, where Jesus was doing a lot of teaching. It was a place where people hung out. It was sort of the center of activity in Jerusalem. So there's no, nothing explicit that says that they continue to do sacrifices. The only act that we see is in the book of Acts where Paul goes to make a vow at the temple. He goes to make a vow and, um, but other than that, um, it, no, th- th- there is no need uh, for sacrifices. And already at that time in Judaism, the shift was happening away from uh, the temple and more of an emphasis on the synagogue. And in fact, the language of the New Testament, James even refers to the church as a synagogue, meaning the understanding of the church is not a temple, but a synagogue where teaching takes place, where the believers gather together around God's word. So no, it, it doesn't seem that they do. And of course, in 70 AD, even if they had wanted to, it wasn't going to happen uh, because that's when Titus's armies destroyed the temple. Would Jesus have ever offered a sacrifice? I think that you can say that, well, yes, so that there were th- sacrifices of thanksgiving when he was presented in the temple. Remember when they lost Jesus um, Can you imagine? Uh, They lost him, uh, although there's a good reason why they lost him, not just providentially, but it was a crowded place, and they were right to assume that he was with somebody else. Um, So there would have been those type of sacrifices, and I think that Jesus' family probably would have participated at some level in ritual purification. But the funny thing about Jesus is that there's an indicator that he doesn't because of the things that he does that technically would defile him like healing on the Sabbath, touching certain people. That, uh, that's a great little passage from the gospel this morning. Remember when it, the question is, uh, they talk about the Tower of Siloam falling on people, like where they were sinners than we are, and Jesus makes a point of that. So Jesus is already saying, it's not what a man eats that defiles him. And then going to supernatural lengths, like in Acts chapter 10, where he gives Peter his dream with... With the tent, I mean the, the sheet and all the animals, and says, "Don't you call barbecue unholy?" Uh, and uh, and you know, saddle up. Yes, Ken. This was Herod's temple. I'm sorry, what? The temple that they were going to was Herod's temple. And That's many right. Many of the articles of worship had been removed by Hezekiah. That's right. So a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the objects had been removed. We talked about. Um, from numbers. So a lot of this stuff would have been replicas, would have been replicas because, well, in some, either they were plundered by a foreign entity and there are all kinds of ideas about where they are. But the Christian can say when it comes to raiders for the lost ark, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. Um, Now, I mean, it might have some value because it's covered in gold, but those things, you're right, the original things would have been carried away. Um, Although things like, um, there's a relief in Rome where you can see the plundering of the temple by Titus's armies, and they're carrying the giant menorah. And there's actually a big movement in Israel to rebuild the temple. And what they need for the temple... So you can actually, if you're walking in the Jewish quarter, in glass outside is this huge menorah which was built so that it could go into the new temple. And even to this day, uh, they're working on getting a red heifer uh, in order to... Because you need the red heifer to purify the temple grounds. And genetically, they say they might have just found one. Uh, but uh, all of this... But of course, what the author of Hebrews would say... Is you're wasting your time. Like, that's an awful lot of work. And all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Don't worry about the red heifer. Worry about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.